Welcome to the first 11th hour of the week. I am Jen Adrian, and I will be your introducer throughout the week for all of these lecture series. Um, I am lucky enough to be able to have this job and listen to all of these wonderful lectures we have been lined up here this week. So I'm really looking forward to all of the lectures. Please feel free to stop me and ask me any festival-related questions, and if I don't have the answer, I can certainly direct you to who does. Two points of business. Every morning I'll ask you to silence your cell phones if you haven't had a chance to do so already. Um, second, there are not handouts today, but if I do have handouts for the lectures, I will put them by the tables as you're coming in the doors. And finally, a third thing, I suppose, is that I have no control over the temperature in this room. Often it's really hot when you first come in, and then at about 11 o'clock when they expect people to be here, it begins to get, um, they turn on the air conditioning and by the end it's really cold. So, um, I don't know, you might want to bring a layer. Okay, and now for today's lecture. Um, we have with us Hope Edelman and Naomi Jackson. And as I prepare an introduction for this morning's lecture on writing, family, and grief, I thought about the advice repeated to me in many writing classes, Mark Twain's command to write what you know. And then I thought too of Saul Bellow when he confessed, I don't know how I feel about something until I've written it down. I thought of them, and these quotes, perhaps because they begin to answer why so many of us investigate our families, our place in them, the joys, and the grief that so often exists for one reason or another. Today, we have two experts with us, Hope Edelman and Naomi Jackson, working writers who have experienced writing about their families. They will converse with you about the joys and pitfalls, the ethics, and the rich material that comes along with the adage, write what you know. Hope Edelman has an MFA in nonfiction from the University of Iowa. She's on, she's on my mirror, right? Just, I'm sure you probably already know there, but Hope Edelman has an MFA in nonfiction from the University of Iowa. Her articles and essays have appeared in numerous publications, including the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, Tribune Writer's Digest, and Self. She is the author of six nonfiction books, including the New York Times bestseller, Motherless Daughters, and the ebook. Boys Like That, Two Cautionary Tales of Love. She recently co-edited the essay, Anthology, I'll Tell You Mine, 30 Years of Nonfiction from the University of Iowa. During the year, she teaches at Antioch University in Los Angeles. Naomi Jackson, on my far right, studied fiction at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Her debut novel, The Star Side of Bird Hill, was published this summer in June by the Penguin Press Jackson was the recipient of a Fulbright Scholarship in South Africa and has been awarded residencies at the University of Pennsylvania's Kelly Writers House, Hedgebrook, the Vermont Studio Center, and many more. Naomi will also be reading tonight at Prairie Lights at 7 p.m. from her debut novel, so I hope that you will have a chance to go find her and listen to her read there tonight at Prairie Lights. All right, and without further ado, please welcome Please welcome, join me in welcoming Hope Edelman and Naomi Jackson. So it's such a pleasure to be here. I had a chance to do the 11th hour last summer with Marcus Burke, and this is actually the room that I graduated from the Iowa Writers Workshop in. Um, so this room has a lot of good mojo in it, and it's a pleasure to talk to you here this morning. Um, so Hope and I um, kind of talk about some overlapping themes, and so we're going to take it kind of one question at a time, go back and forth so we can have more of a conversation with each other. Um, we're going to tackle a couple topics. One is family, the general um, theme of writing about family. The other is writing about loss and grief. And then we'll talk just generally about the writing process. Um, and then once we're done with that, we'll open it up for Q&A. We'd like to leave a really good meaty chunk for Q&A, so about 20 minutes. Um, and you'll be able to ask us anything you want there. Um, so what do you want to start off talking about fam writing about family? Uh, sure. I, I write exclusively nonfiction. I also should add, I'm thrilled to hear you graduated in this room, Naomi, because <laughs> I left town before my graduation. Uh, it's like sort of in, it was in my rearview mirror as my U-Haul headed to New York. I got yeah. my diploma in the mail. Um, 
I was heading out um, to work on my first book, Motherless Daughters, which was about my family. And I exclusively write nonfiction, and much of it, because it's from personal experience, is about my family of origin that I grew up in, in suburban New York, or the family I've created in Los Angeles with my husband and two daughters. And um, writing about family for me at the beginning was also writing about loss and grief. Um, I don't think you can grow up in a family and not have some measure of loss or grief at some point, even if it's not the death of one of the members. It might be estrangement or secrets or um, grieving for what you never had. Um, so in my case, it was very clear. My mother died when I was 17 years old after a year and a half battle with cancer. And my family kind of disintegrated after that point. And years later, when I was here in Iowa doing my graduate work, I wanted to explore the effect that had on young women because all the books I could find assumed that you would be in middle age when your parents died. It was very little at the time. This was about 20 years ago. For young people whose parents had died, um, and I knew quite a few whose mothers or fathers had died, but I was particularly interested in girls who lost their mothers. So I started doing interviews and researching, and the interviews and the research went really, really well. The family part of the book was a lot more difficult to negotiate because um, the remaining members of my family were all alive and uh, perfectly capable of reading <laughs> a book that came out about them. And, and our past together. Um, in the Iowa program, I had learned uh, that the, any story that you tell is, is your story, your version of events. My sister would have written a very different book, and, and fortunately, she knew that and was very generous with letting me tell my own story and, and not interfering. Um, but a lot of sticky issues come up when you write about family. There are legal issues, there are ethical issues, and actually, I, I think I'll get into those in the Q&A, because I'm certain having taught nonfiction here for so many years, that this will be a question for many of you. But um, in writing about family and writing about grief, um, I've, you know, I, I kind of based my career on the two over time. I, after Motherless Daughters, I wrote a collection of, let, I edited a collection of letters from readers called Letters from Motherless Daughters, and then I uh, wrote a book about women's relationships with their grandmothers, and then Motherless Mothers, which was about how women who lose their mothers parent differently themselves when they become mothers. And, uh, and then I told my editor, shoot me if we put mother in a title of another book. Because <laughs> I, can't, I can't make this in my whole life work. And um, I did a memoir called The Possibility of Everything, uh, which is a mother-daughter story, but from the other direction. But it still had, there's grief and loss in almost every story that we tell somewhere in there, um, and that brings up a lot of emotional issues, too. Naomi, do you want to pick up there, talking yeah, about sure. the emotions of it? Sure, so I actually um, saw a, an advertisement for a motherless daughter support group in Philly, which is how I first heard about Hope's work. Um, I didn't go because I was actually in the thick of writing my novel, and I was really nervous, actually, about that conversation, which means I probably should have gone. Um, but I managed to get the novel done anyway. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about writing about family. It's a little bit of an interesting conversation for me because I am writing about family, but it's not my actual family. Um, so there is a family in my novel, The Star Side of Bird Hill. Here's the book um, that just came out on June 30th. It's a coming-of-age story set in Barbados, where my mother's family is from, and in Brooklyn, where I grew up. I'm the daughter of West Indian immigrants. My father is from Antigua, my mother is from Barbados, and my stepmother's Jamaican. So I have a pan-Caribbean mongrel experience um, that certainly informed this book. We used to spend, me and my older sister used to spend quite a few summers at home in Barbados and Antigua. Um, but I like to say that the most interesting things in this book didn't actually happen to me. So the kids in this novel, Phaedra, who's 10, and um, her older sister, Dion, who's 16, lose their mother. She commits suicide about two-thirds of the way through the book. Believe me, it's not a spoiler. All the descriptions online pretty much tell you that's going to happen. Um, and then their father comes with some nefarious intentions to collect them, and they end the book facing their future in Barbados. So imagine you were sent home for a summer, and then suddenly you're staying in this place that doesn't quite feel like home. 
Um, so it's a coming of age story, it's a summer story. Um, and there are certainly some overlaps between the story of these girls and my own story with my sister. Although my sister would like you to know that she's not the sister in the novel. Um, <laughs> she keeps insisting that, and I actually do think it's really true. Um, and, you know, there are some interesting dis differences. So when we would go home for the summer to Antigua, where my dad's family's from, we spent a summer with about eight cousins. So imagine eight kids and four adults in a very small four bedroom house. Um, so there are about mm, six kids missing from this novel. Um, so there are some pretty distinct differences between the childhood that I had and the experience that these girls have. Both of my parents are still very much alive. Um, I do write, I'll talk a little bit more when we talk about writing about loss and grief specifically. I do write from some personal experience having lost my mother in a more figurative way than a literal way. Um, but I never had the experience of losing a parent to suicide. So I certainly was both grounded in my own experience and imagining some things as I was writing this book. Um, because it's a coming of age novel, every single interview I have is how much of this story is yours? And I understand because people want to know, are you in this book? Um, and where are you in this book? Where's your heart? Where's your soul? Where's your story in this book? I would say that um, I'm very much in it, but that doesn't mean that the story has to hew very exactly to my story. Um, and I don't think it would be as interesting if it had. I'm sure maybe one day I'll write more nonfiction about my own experience with my family, with my mother, all this kind of stuff. But um, for now, I'm really interested in writing fiction. What did you draw from? Like, what undercurrent of emotions or understanding of human nature did you draw from to create these characters in this setting? Yeah, so I, I like to say that um, Caribbean women are my muses. I feel like people often talk about different kinds of people as muses, and I like, I like to say working class West Indian women are my, my muses. And so um, I grew up in a multi-generational family, a family that included not only my parents, but also uncles, cousins, aunts, who would live with us for like six months or a year at a time. So I was used to a family that was very expansive, not just the nuclear family, but lots of different people coming in and out and always parenting everybody. So anybody who was an adult could parent you, even if they were only five years older than you. Um, that was my experience. Um, and I had a really close relationship with one of my grandmothers who um, had a very terrible car accident in 2003. Um, she was in the hospital for about three months, and I kicked it really hard at her bedside until she threw me out. Um, and the thing that I went to do after I spent all this time with my grandmother is I started writing. And I still spent a lot of time with her, but I was hearing her stories. And so my grandmother's stories, the stories of my Jamaican and Bayesian grandmothers are very much a part of my story. Um, my stepmother is a nurse and tells incredible stories about her patients. Um, hopefully you've never been one. Um, <laughs> some may have heard of you before. Um, so I'm definitely a storyteller, but I'm a storyteller who borrows those stories from the women in my family. Yeah. Um, and the loss piece, let's talk about, more about that, but you take it away, Hope. Talking about loss? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, um, I'll talk about loss, writing about loss from a nonfiction perspective, and then I'll, I'll hand it to you for writing about it from a fictional perspective. The loss that we write about when we're writing memoir is very real to us because we've experienced it. And to a certain extent, we have to go back and, and relive those experiences to mine them for their emotional power and, and put them on the page. Um, and that's often just emotionally difficult for uh, us to engage in, to go back and to visit the, the hardest or most painful or scariest points of our lives. When we take on the commitment to write about them, I, I believe we also need to make the commitment to write about them as honestly and as fully as we can. And so, um, but to also be prepared for whatever might come up emotionally. And sometimes you need to take a break from your work and then come back to it. And I remember nights, and I was on a deadline with Motherless Daughters, so I didn't get a lot of time to, um, to take a break. But you know, I, there were some very low points in writing that book. <clears throat> because my mother had died, and, but the kids had never known how sick she was. Her death was very sudden to us, even though my father and the doctor had seen it coming for the past year or more. And um, so I knew the events that I'd experienced, but I didn't know the story behind that story. And I thought it was very important to write the book to go be a researcher and, and get those materials. So I interviewed some family members. I interviewed my mother's best friends. 
uh, flew down to Florida, drove to Philadelphia to spend time with them. I got her medical records um, from both hospitals, the one where she had her first surgery and the one where she died. And um, I found remarkable material in those interviews and documents, but I'd be lying to say that it wasn't devastating to confront them. And I had to be able to compartmentalize saying, this part of me is the daughter who's allowed to feel anything that I feel, reading my mother's medical records, seeing how, how advanced her cancer was when, when it was discovered and how optimistic she was still trying to be in her conversations in the hospital. That's the part of me that's the daughter that can feel and experience all of it. But over here has to be the writer who can manage those emotions to an extent where I can get the story down on the page in a way that will be illuminating or helpful for readers. And um, so what I would do is I would sit in front of the computer all day and be that person over here. And then I would uh, take a bath at night and just cry in the bathtub feeling so sad for my mom. She was 42 years old when she died. She was very young. Um, and so, uh, you know, I've, been, I've written not just that first book, Motherless Daughters, but then several more books about loss. And so I've had to go deeper and deeper into that experience of what it meant from a, to, to lose a mother at such an early age and then become a mother myself and then reach her age at time of death and then watch my kids reach the age I was when she died. All of these are trigger points in the psychology of someone who loses a parent young. And I've kept writing about them, essays and books. Um, I can do it now in a way that where I can compartmentalize easier, but it's still emotionally difficult. And I hope it always will be, because I think it's that emotion that I can still tap into that makes the writing richer and that helps readers identify with the experience. Because even if you haven't lost a mother when you were 17, if you have had someone you love or someone who's very close to you die, um, beyond the specifics of the experience, the excuse me, the emotion underneath it, the loss, the horror, the grief, the mourning, is all the same, we all share that. And that's what I try to tap into in my writing, which is why I think men whose fathers have died or parents whose children have died will come to me and say they read the book and still got something out of it. But it took several drafts to be able to get there. It wasn't something that I did the first time easily. Um, and it, and, and it, you know, emotionally, it was, it was something to be managed, that's for sure. Um, so one of the things Hope said when we talked on the phone yesterday was um, that you that I was writing about an imagined loss, and I actually really appreciated that frame for because I hadn't thought about the difference between an actual loss and an imagined loss. And well, so, I guess if your mother died, yeah, oh, so you're imagining the girls exactly. losing their mother, yeah. exactly. Um, so I had had so I had a period of about 15 years from the time I was 13 until I was 28 when I didn't see my mother. Um, so she couldn't care for us, that's a long other story. Um, but so I did experience a deep loss of my mother, basically from my early teens until I became an adult. And so I think I, in some ways, identify as a motherless daughter that certainly um, uh, colored my experience of my growing up. Um, and it was an unusual experience, I would say, that I grew up in a community where there were a lot of fathers who were absent, but not a lot of mothers who were absent. So it wasn't an experience where I felt like a lot of people could relate to what I was talking about and what I was going through, um, particularly because of my mother's circumstances. And so when I was writing this book, um, I started in December of 2009. I worked for it, on it for about two years before I came to the Ira Writers Workshop. And then I got really stuck. And now that I'm looking back at what the stuckness was about, I think it was because I didn't want to deal with the hard stuff of this novel. So I was really comfortable. Um, the first like 50 or 60 pages of this novel are about these two girls at home in Barbados and kind of exploring the world, getting into lots of trouble, and then something has to happen to them. And in this, their case, it's the death of their mother. And I really skirted writing about um, the mother's death for a long time. Um, so I only shared this uh, excerpts of this novel and workshop very sparingly, in part because it felt extremely personal. Um, and I, I was, I found workshop to be difficult because I'm a sensitive person, um, and so I was concerned about sharing my baby uh, with with workshoppers. And when I did, um, everyone said, I think I actually shared the one scene where the mother dies, and everyone said, you have 
to go there. And I was like, I don't want to go there. Um, I had been writing for many years with um, three words, insert death scene. Um, <laughs> because I was so deeply afraid of writing about it. I'm not sure what I thought would happen um, if I wrote about it. Something about the actual writing would make it real. And even though the mother in this novel was not my mother, it still, still felt really bad to kill her. Um, and um, beyond um, her death showing up on the page, I also needed to have the grandmother in the novel tell her granddaughters that their mother had died. And I was just so afraid to do it. And so it took me a long time to kind of step up to the plate and do the thing. Um, but it also took a lot of prodding from different people who read drafts of this book over the years. Um, so I say that to say that it was a team effort. Um, I don't think that if it were me, if it were me alone, if I had not probably been in the workshop or in a writing group, I would have shelved this novel um, because it would have scared me too much. Um, and I think that being in a community of writers who felt um, committed to helping me achieve my vision and also in a community of writers and readers who felt that the story was important um, helped me get over myself and, and write the hard thing. So really it sounds like you had two layers of imagined loss. There was imagining what the loss would be like for these girls, but inevitably in writing it you're imagining what it would have been like had you had the same experience. Yeah. And that's scary to think of, but I think we have to write about the things that scare us. Some of the best writing comes there, and some of the most honest writing, and some of the writing that will touch other people, but you know, we can't force ourselves to do it if we don't feel ready. I recommend to my students exactly what you did. If you come up to a scene or a chapter that you don't feel ready to write, you can skip over it and keep going. You don't have to write every book in a linear fashion if you know what happens in that chapter. Um, when I wrote Motherless Daughters, I wrote the entire book before I wrote chapter five, which was the chapter about fathers and daughters, because I just thought, this chapter is going to devastate my father, who's still living, and I don't, I don't want to do that, but it's such an important part of the experience for these women, the relationship with the surviving parent, there has to be a chapter about it. And my editor took me out for lunch in New York and said, Hope, you know, um, you have deadlines in like 10 days, you've got to write this chapter. And I said to her, there's no way I can write this chapter without hurting my father. And she said, well, why don't you make that the first line of your chapter and take it from there and write to that fear or write to that worry. And if you look at the first, Motherless Daughters now had three editions, but if you look at the first edition, chapter five says, begins with, there's no way I can write this chapter without hurting my father. And that was just, when I just released that and admitted that and was honest about that, it opened up the chapter and it, it just all flowed from there. I think I wrote that chapter in five or six days. Um, and it did devastate my father, predictably so, um, which was something I had to be prepared for. And um, I'll tell you the story of what happened because I know there are some of you in the audience that are probably concerned and wondering what do I do. I'm, ri I'm writing about family members who might see it. I'm not sure how they'll respond. It might destroy the relationship. Some of these memoirists who come to my classes ultimately decided to write fiction for this reason. Although then the characters are only thinly disguised, they still know who they are, but at least they're not named in their minds. Um, with my father, <coughs> I, um, I wrote the whole chapter and then I strategically sent it to him to read at a point in the, in the, production, um, in the production process where I could still make small changes but not big ones. So I sent him the manuscript and I said, Dad, um, this is what's called um, first galleys, so, or second galleys. This is what's called second galleys. So if there are any factual inaccuracies in here, um, I can still change them. So let me know if you find any. But I wasn't giving him an opportunity to take out whole anecdotes or paragraphs, which I knew he would try to do. And my relationship with him at the time was not particularly good, but I still didn't want to sever it completely. Um, and he read the manuscript and I heard nothing. And so I knew, oh, this is not a very good sign. I better call him up. So I, I called him and I asked him if he'd read the manuscript. And he said, yes. And I said, well, um, what do you think? Do you have any corrections? And he said, I'm devastated. And that's all he would say. And I said, okay, well, if there are any factual inaccuracies in it, if anything in here is not true or not accurate, tell me and I'll make the change. And there was a long pause and he said, okay. Your mother did not get that fur coat from, from my mother. I bought it for her myself. Yeah. And that was it, in, you know, in, in 400 pages. 
So I learned a very valuable lesson in that moment, which is that family members and others uh, won't get upset because the, you're printing things that are untrue necessarily or that they don't agree with. They often get upset because you're printing things they know to be true that they don't want other people to know. He was really concerned that the family members were going to circle the wagons and point at him and say, you were a terrible father. And that's and so he was feeling all this shame and, and, and all this embarrassment and anger at himself. And, um, and I said, okay, I'll make that change, no problem. So I made that change. And I, also my dad had just read the book, that just skimmed the book and read the pieces that were about our family. He hadn't read any of the like 70% of the book that was all explanatory that talked about why our family reacted the way it did to a death and how it was a textbook version and here are the reasons why many families act this way and, and here's the effects it has on kids and here's how we can make it better for others in the future. But um, in fact, the family members did not point their fingers and accuse him of anything. What happened instead was the opposite. He started getting phone calls from extended family members saying, I had no idea how hard it was for you in those years. I'm so sorry that I wasn't there for you. And then he suddenly became the biggest champion of the book. And he would march into his local Barnes and Noble and demand that it be put in the front window. And, and, and it opened up a dialogue between us. But I got a very you know, important lesson in how um, one, per one family member's fact is another person's shame. And one person's shame is another person's secret. And one person's secret is another person's truth and, and the basis for their identity. And you can't expect a uniform response from family members because everyone has a different relationship to what they consider the facts of their own past or history. So I tell my students, just write the story. Do not worry about what people will think. Just write the story. They will always object to things you think they will never object to. I thought my father would object to things that, that would have made me upset as a parent, but the thing that made him angry was that I thought that someone else had bought my mom a fur coat. So if I had taken out all that other stuff, um, I would have been doing a disservice to the book because I would have been uh, guessing wrong. I always guess wrong. I always think my husband will object to things that he never objects to, and he always finds tiny little details that he doesn't want other people to know that he asks me to take out, that I'm, I'm almost always willing to take out. And if not, if they're really important to the story, then we discuss and negotiate it. Um, because there are certain people in my life for whom my relationship is much more important than anything I, I published. My, my husband, my siblings, my children. So I let them read what I've written after I've written it, and then we talk about anything that they might not want to see in print. And they, I either explain my reasoning and then they understand and agree, or we make minor changes, or in some cases we'll make major changes just to preserve that relationship. So um, I think you guys are catching me pretty early on in the process, so I can't tell you yet what the real reaction to this book has, is going to be because it's only been three weeks. Um, and I have given a draft to my sister, and she's actually been one of the most incredible champions for this book in my family, and my family has been amazing. Showed up to my launch party, made rum punch for the party, um, and have been promoting me pretty hard everywhere, um, to the church, to their social media or whatever. So I, I'm curious to see whether that will shift as people actually read the book um, and what might come up for them. I'm, I'm actually really interested to see where it goes. I think that maybe the potential for it isn't quite as, uh, the potential for anger might not be quite the same because it's a fictional text. And as, it's, as I said, there are so many real differences between the girls and the family in this novel and my actual family. So that I don't think because I'm not saying that this is a, a nonfiction project, it's not a work of truth. Mm -hmm. It's a work of emotional truth, but not factual truth. Um, I think that there's maybe more leeway and maybe less uh, potential for upset. But I think that when I, when I started writing this book, I actually did not send it to my sister for her approval. When I said to, I said she was the first person who, who read the book in its entirety in the form, in its final form. And I said, I'm sharing it with you so that you can read it, not so that she can change it. Um, and at first, she's kind of balked at that, and then she said, okay. Um, and I think I am so grateful that she trusted me enough with her um, parts of her story, that she trusted me enough as a writer that she thought I was gonna do justice um, to the story that I was trying to tell. Um, and 
so you know we'll see we'll see what happens this is just week three um so ask me again in a year okay well what, <laughs> what, what has actually happened um i wanted to talk a bit about the emotional drain of writing a difficult book um so one of the things i said to hope is that i wish i'd known how hard this was going to be although maybe i wish i didn't know because maybe i would not have embarked on it had i known the darkness um, that would take over me as I finished this book. So like Hope, I was writing this book on a deadline. Um, the book was acquired three days after I graduated from Iowa, so I graduated here on a Sunday, and on Tuesday the book was acquired, um, and it was due in November. So that was May, as I had about five or six months to get it done, and I probably wrote about 100 pages in that time. <laughs> um, so let's just say it was intense. Um, I had the pressure of just producing more words because I was started originally as a poet, this book was only 118 pages when I finished the first draft, and the final draft of it was about 230 pages. Um, so there was a lot of room for growth and a lot of work that I had to do. The book went through about seven or eight drafts, from draft one to the final draft that was published. Um, so there was a lot of work just on the sentence level that had, had to be done, but like I said, insert death scene and some other difficult moments in the book were not easy. I had to go to some really dark places, and especially in the fall when I was in Philadelphia working on this novel, I had a hard fall. Um, it's really not easy to sit down every day with girls who just lost their mother and write about the fallout of that. Um, and I was had to, because when you read the novel, you'll see that there's a shared point of view. So there's the young sister's point of view, there's the older sister's point of view, and then the grandmother's. So it was hanging out in not just the grief of one person, but three people, and trying to understand um, what the fallout would be for someone who's 10, someone who's 16, the mother who's 63. Um, and so there was a lot of emotional work I had to do just to jump in and out of those perspectives. Um, so it was very challenging um, on a craft level, and it was very challenging on an emotional level. I would say that um, it took about six months to become a normal person again after I finished. So probably by the following summer, I finished in December, and by the following summer, I was like, okay, I feel human again. Um, and the thing I will say, too, is that it, this book has not been without its loss. My grandmother in Barbados died about a month after I turned in the final manuscript of this book. Um, a part of me feels that she was waiting. Um, until I did this thing um, so that I could go home and bury her. Um, it was really surreal to bury her after having written this scene about these girls burying their mother in Barbados to go home with my sister and bury my grandmother there um, was beyond surreal. Um, it was like life, life imitates art on a much deeper level. Um, so the book has been challenging but I wouldn't change any of it um, because I feel like it's been very moving for people who've read it. I've gotten lots of incredible feedback already um, from readers. I don't, I won't say I, I don't care about the press, but for me, um, the real beauty and the real uh, meat, the sweet spot is where readers feel like um, their truth is told and that something in their spirit was moved by what I, what I wrote. So that's what's been incredible, and for me, that makes all those hard months worth it. Um, so I wouldn't go back and change it, but I actually do wish I had known a little bit, because then I wouldn't have been so surprised. Um, because I get up every morning and be like, why am I so tired? <laughs> all I'm doing is writing a book. Um, and so it seemed strange also to talk to people who were not writers, because I looked like I had an easy life, right? My book had just sold. Um, I had six months to finish it. I had an apartment for free in Philadelphia. I didn't have a job. And so for most people in my life who are not writers, I had a very ideal situation. Um, in fact, to some people, it looked as if I were on vacation. And so um, it was really difficult to talk to people who were not writers about um, what I was going through. And I say that not to say, like, feel sorry for me now. That's not my intention at all. Um, I just say, Get ready if you're going to write the difficult thing that it will have not only an emotional effect, but I think also a physical effect on you. Well, writing is work. I mean, yeah. I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, oh my, you had six months. That's like 12 hour days. Yes. For me, those are easily 12 hour writing days every day, day after day, probably not even breaking for the weekends because I'm a slow writer. 
and to get a book done in that amount of time or completed and ready to go. When you talk about, you said seven or eight drafts, had some of them been done before you sold the book or did you do seven yeah. or eight drafts between yeah. May and November? Yeah, the big draft, so I probably was like at draft five or six when the book sold and okay. so the big, but I would say I did a lot of work in those last six months. So I was probably at about 145 pages when the, no, 159 when the book sold. Okay. And then oh, so you sold a part off a partial manuscript, which is not, which will never happen for me again, probably. <laughs> um, but that's okay. Um, it's rare, and for fiction, it's rare. Yeah, so it was about 160 too. pages, and then I wrote about 70 more pages in the next six months. So it was a lot of work. I, I wasn't, um, I wasn't kicking it that hard <laughs> during those six months. I just want to talk about something you said that I thought was so interesting, where you said that your book was about emotional truth, but not factual truth, and. Um, that can't be true in memoir. Um, our books have to be emotionally true, and they also have to be as factually accurate um, as we can make them. Now, I've been a, and, and witnessed so many panels on creative nonfiction debating what's truth. There really is no, you know, sort of like wholesale answer. It's, it's not. It, there's no unequivocal answer. What is truth in, in nonfiction? Because truth is a matter of perspective and a matter of interpretation. Like I said, my sister's truth about our childhood is really quite different from mine, but that is her version of the truth. Um, but I will say that if you are concerned about um, family members or real people that you're writing about, your best defense is always going to be um, factual or historical accuracy. If you have documentation for any of the events that you claim happened, if you have other people who were with you who remember things happening the way you remember them, um, then you're, you're much safer over the long term. Um, <clears throat> so I, I, I always encourage my students to be as truthful as possible. And when their memories are in doubt or when there's nobody to verify them and they're concerned, to write those passages in a way that signal to the reader that we are entering the realm of um, doubt or possible um, skewing of events. So there are so many ways you can do that. And it, in creative nonfiction, you have the license to just come out and say um, that I can't remember exactly how it happened, but this is how it must have been, or this is how others have told me, or this is, after hearing this story so many times, this is the version of events that I've pieced together. There are very elegant ways to do this, to just let your reader know we are entering, now we are entering the, the realm of imagination or doubt. We're always in the realm of imagination and creative nonfiction because every time we recreate dialogue, we're trying to remember the way things were said or how they were said unless we have them on tape or video, which is a very rare and, and unique opportunity to work from. Um, we're recreating from memory, and we have an, the readers enter an agreement with us when they read a memoir, um, where they say, I know that everything in here is not going to be 100% factually accurate as it occurred. That would be impossible. I mean, a, Frank McCourt was not running around Limerick Island with a tape recorder when he was five years old, yet his, you know, 40% of his book or more is dialogue, right? So he's recreated that based on what he imagines must have been said or might have been said or could have been said based on the characters as he remembers them from his childhood. But, um, but I tell my students, write it to the best of your ability. Um, just be honest with yourself and honest with your readers. That's where memoirists get caught, and that's where they get publicly flogged, um, when they're trying to pass off events that they know didn't happen, and they're trying to pass them off as truth, and it's easy to verify that the facts don't match up with the text. Um, that's what happened with James Fry. It's happening right now with the woman in New York who wrote Primates on Park Avenue. Um, there seems to be kind of like a, a, a gleeful um, initiative on the parts of certain journalists to try to root out untruths in memoir. So, um, and unfortunately, some people haven't done their homework in, in a way that makes that difficult. Or just avoid putting untruths in your memoir from the beginning, and you should be you should be covered. Um, so I think it's time to open up for questions. I want to say one thing, which is about for people who are interested in writing some fiction that's related to your life but not your life, I found the what if question to be very productive. Mm -hmm. um, so I 
had for a long time contemplated the mortality of my father, but I never contemplated the mortality of my mother, which is ironic because she wasn't there. Um, and so the what if question that drove some parts of this book were what if my mother died? Um, but the major question that actually, the what if question that, wrote, that drove this book is what if I was sent home to Barbados and never came back? Um, it had been a, a thing that haunted me, so whenever I would go home for the summer, our parents would ship us off like the day after school ended in June, and we would come back right before Labor Day, and we were they were like, good, see you later in two months. Um, and one of the things that they would joke about is like, you know, if you don't behave, you will get sent home. And I actually had a friend who um, was sent back to Guyana because she got pregnant and she died. And so part of what was animating the story was the actual facts of her experience. Um, so I was kind of putting a couple couple things together, but I'm just saying for people who are fiction writers and um, have, have an idea for a story that's loosely based on your experience, I find the what if question um, to be very productive for producing, at the very good, least, very good plot points. Um, <laughs> and I just want to add so, that you yeah. can also use that what if in nonfiction too. Yeah. I mean, you can project yourself into a different, you know, into an alternate reality, as long as you're letting readers know that you're doing it. Yeah. Um, you know, if this were happening to me 30 years ago, here's how things would have played out. Or if I were the daughter of my aunt, here's how my life might have been different. I mean, those are places that you can certainly go and imagine yourself into the what ifs. Um, but if you start writing the what ifs as if they really happened, like what if I didn't just spend three hours in jail but spent three months there instead, uh, then you're, you're, you're trafficking, I think, in fiction. You're, you know, you're, you're, in a, you're outside the realm of nonfiction and, and, and run the big risk of getting caught. So let's open it for questions now, if we can. Yep. Would you like to choose? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I'm lucky to see you started, but I'm wondering what prompted um, you to actually write um, memoir. Oh, okay. Um, the question, I'll repeat the questions for those of you who can't hear. The question is what prompted both of us to write memoir? Well, Naomi doesn't write memoir. Um, uh, we could ask, I, I suppose, what prompted her to write this story as a, as a novel instead of a real story since she went to Barbados in the summers. But um, what prompted me to write memoir? Well, I began as a journalist. Um, I wasn't all that interested in making stories up. I, I, I don't have a terrific imagination that way. I, I believe that the things that happen to us in real life are much more interesting than anything that I could create in my own imagination. And I was in the nonfiction writing program here. Um, and I started writing essays, and the death of my mother kept poking through these essays. And um, I started to realize over the course of my time here that this was something that clearly I needed to write about, even though I didn't want to write about it. And I had the encouragement of several professors who um, said, yeah, this is a really important topic. Two professors who have both lost their mothers at an early age. Um, and suddenly, it's what you know how you you, I don't know, you're introduced to a person and then you walk around town and you see them everywhere and you realize you must have seen them everywhere before, you just didn't recognize them because you didn't know who they were. That's what happened once I decided, okay, I'm going to write about the death of my mother. Everywhere I went, I discovered that people I knew had lost mothers when they were young, but we'd never talked about it, so I'd never known that about them. And um, I started going out and doing interviews and collecting stories and that confirmed for me, yeah, there really is a lot of interest here in this book. Um, someone has to do it. Here I am in a graduate program with the time and the resources. I guess it's I guess it's going to be me, um, and that's that's how I got started. Do you want to talk about why you decided to tell that story as nonfiction instead of writing about your personal background? Yeah, I I write as a novel. Sorry. Yeah. So um, I was a creative writer as a poet and uh, a short story writer. I'd been reading writing a really terrible novel with a little girl named Phaedra for about four years. And then these characters, Phaedra and her older sister, and then their compatriots, their little summer crushes, showed up in this scene. And I felt like this was a novel and not a short story. So I just followed my nose um, with this novel. Um, it's interesting because actually, as I was working on this novel, I ended up in Brazil as a roommate with someone who was the editor at Simon & Schuster. And um, we had a lot of really great conversations over that time. She didn't buy my book, but we're friendly now. Um, and uh, she said to me, I, I was telling her a little bit about my own story, and she was like, you have to write a memoir. And I, my response to that was, absolutely not. Um, and it still pretty much is. Um, 
I am very close to my family, um, even with all the difficulties that we've had, and I don't see myself anytime soon taking on a book-length project or even a, an essay-length project that would go into depth about, about that story. I, I feel much more comfortable in the realm of fiction. I think it's where my gifts lie. Um, maybe that might change uh, over the years, but that's where I'm at right now. Memoir inevitably carries with it an amount of exposure for the author. There's a really wonderful uh, salon piece by the, uh, by the author Danny Shapiro. Um, you can look it up, Danny Shapiro Salon. It's called Dear Disillusioned Reader. And it's a response to an email that she received that was emblematic of several emails she's received. She's written several memoirs and nonfiction books as well as novels. Um, but it's about how readers confuse the narrator of a memoir with the author herself or himself and have expectations of what the author should be revealing without realizing this is an artistically crafted story. Um, and so she seeks to educate readers about what memoir is and what memoir isn't. Um, but the exposure is a real issue, and I think about it a lot now, um, more so than I needed to 20 years ago. 20 years ago, you would publish a memoir, and your book would be reviewed in a, you know, if you were lucky, more than a handful of places by, by seasoned or, or trained critics. And then you'd read it and decide if you felt that their assessment was accurate or not, and, and think about what you might do next time the same or differently. Um, but now, in the era of citizen cr critics, um, you hear from every single reader of your book, good and bad. <laughs> and They'll either post online, or they'll send emails to you directly, or they'll contact your publisher if they're unhappy with something you say. Um, and people come out of the woodwork. And so there is a degree of exposure that now requires a memoirist, I think, to have um, a thick, much thicker skin than we needed to have in the past, and a much broader understanding of what readers expect and how to manage those expectations. That doesn't mean cater to them. It means um, be prepared for them. And so there's a whole new psychological component to being a memoir who exposes a portion of yourself, which is what a memoir is. A memoir is about a portion of a life. It's not an autobiography. And it's artistically rendered. I wrote a memoir that took place over about three and a half months. And I did not tell the reader everything that happened to me or went on in my life during those three and a half months because it would have been a 1,500-page unreadable experience for them. Um, it wound up being about 350 pages, selecting very carefully the scenes that helped tell the story I wanted to tell. So I plucked moments of my life during those three and a half months. Um, but you know, nonetheless, heard from readers who wanted to know why I didn't talk about this or why I didn't get into that. Or um, and and so, um, it, Danny's letter is a really good one for readers because if you're if you're interested in writing memoir, it does definitely does give you a sense of what to expect. And Naomi said, "Why didn't anybody tell me? Um, and why didn't anybody tell me what to expect?" And that's a that tells readers what to expect. I think in a very sort of like clear, honest, and compassionate way. Yes, right there in the yellow. Um, yeah. Okay, the question is when writing memoir, can you appendix that um, these characters are composite characters or this may have been, you know, changed a little bit? Uh, you usually don't do it in an appendix, you do it at a disclaimer at the beginning of the book that says the story is based on real characters and, you know, certain events and details and names have been changed. And, um, if you get to the point of working with a publisher, they will do something that's called vet your manuscript. It used to be that vetting the manuscript was someone reading it really fast and seeing if there was anything in there they could have been sued for. Um, now it's much more extensive in, since so many memoirs were exposed as untruths. In my last book, which was published in, uh, my last memoir, which was not my last book, but my last memoir, which was published in 2009, I had to make a list for the publisher of all the real names that I'd used. I had to list the real names of all my characters, tell them which real names appeared in the book, which ones were pseudonyms, because I did that to protect the identity of some people, and um, which were composites. I think there were two. And the one character they were most worried about was a composite character, which um, legally they felt protected them because I changed enough details. 
Um, but you wouldn't do it in an appendix, really. I mean, you could, that would be really, it would be unorthodox, but it might be interesting. But typically, it's just done at a disclaimer at the beginning, right in the, before the book, um, often on the um, title page, where there's a signal to readers that certain names and details have been changed. If it's more than that, and you feel the need to tell the reader, I suppose you could do it in your acknowledgments, maybe. Um, there, there are ways to let readers know that, but there are very good reasons for wanting to do that in nonfiction work, and a lot of writers do that. In many of my uh, published works, I've changed the characters' names to protect their identities, because not because I'm afraid they'll sue me, but because I want to, you know, I, I don't think that anyone should be held accountable for the rest of the li their lives for something they did when they were 16. Um, but, but that said, um, if somebody were angry enough to try to bring suit, which is very, very rare, but can happen, um, then I would have shown that I had taken reasonable steps to protect their identity and they wouldn't have much of a case as a private individual. Someone in the front had her hand up for a while? Yep, right here. Uh, actually, the, the chapter I remember most from Motherless Daughters is the one about your father. <laughs> uh, but I had a question for Naomi, and that is, how did you choose how to kill the mother? And that was the insert death, and that's a pretty intense, you know, yeah, it's <laughs> kind of a funny story. No one's actually asked this this one yet. So I was on my way to a friend's wedding in New York, um, and while I was at, about to go to Barbados to research this novel, and um, I was I had left the house early on time, two hours early to make it to this wedding, and then I got delayed because someone um, threw themselves in front of the train, in front of the one train, killed themselves. Um, and I'd read about that before. Um, it actually happens. I can't remember. There's a number for it, and. Um, New York City with the MTA and MTA workers who hit people are obviously traumatized by this and there's a whole other set of things that happen that I know because my, my brother-in-law worked for the, the Transport Workers Union. Anyway, so I, I had had this experience of sitting on the train and um, being delayed for my friend's wedding because this woman or man had killed themselves and uh, it really shook me. Um, I had never experienced it. I actually had a lot of fear about riding between the subway cars because I always thought I would fall. Anyway, it was a it was a place, a tender place for me and then it got poked really intensely. And so um, I tried to imagine what someone who was deeply depressed and by themselves in New York City, how they might take, take themselves out. Um, and that's what I came up with. A, a high school friend's mother had also killed herself in that same way when I was in high school. Um, and so that had always, sat in the back of my mind. Um, so that's that's how I came up with that. Well, that explains why it was so emotionally difficult for you to write it, because even though it wasn't a real-life experience, you were writing about one of your fears. Yeah. You had to go in and explore one of your personal fears in writing that Yeah, it was chapter. a what-if. There was actually a chapter of the novel that um, is written from her perspective, right when she walks up to the edge, and I took it out. Um, it was too much, actually, even for me. <laughs> Um, and also because the rest of the novel really is deeply just in those three characters, I felt like if we dipped in there and only for her death experience, it would be weird. Um, but yeah, that's how that came about. Yes, right here. Um, I kind of heard an answer to this in what you were talking about, Hope. I was wondering about when, um, and this may not be your experience, when your parents are deceased and you're interested in writing about family, and one of the things that I thought of since you were talking, speaking is uh, you can start out by talking about your grief and then go into the parts that are not as, I mean, balance it or talk about the parts that aren't all pretty. But do you have, can either of you speak to anything like that or have that been, do you have any experience with that? Yeah, sure. Yeah, oh, I have. Um, I actually think, yeah, so the question I think is about grief and about balancing out writing about grief with writing about other things. Is that what the you question mean? is about when the when the subjects of a memoir or non or fiction are deceased and dealing with uh, you know, it's different when Hope was talking about there are living people who are gonna be seeing this, but you're thinking about their legacy, you're thinking about not about respecting, I'm thinking about respecting their memory okay. and still wanting to um, know how to deal with that. Okay. 
So I can talk about that, yeah. Um, for those of you who are writing about family members or individuals who are dead, you have to worry way less about any legal aspect of it, but you're, because you cannot libel a dead person except in the state of Utah. Very interesting, <laughs> family of a dead person can sue for libel in Utah. If there were a reason, if there are public figure or limited purpose public figure, but at any rate, we're talking about the ethical part of it, you know, in, in your family, um, and thinking about the legacy that's left behind when, when you write about someone uh, in ways that are perhaps not ways that they would have wanted to be written about or not particularly flattering. I had this experience when I wrote the book about grandmothers. I was very, very close with my maternal grandmother throughout my childhood. After my parents, she was the adult that had the most effect on me growing up. Um, I loved her very much, but she was a very complicated woman in many ways, extremely eccentric, idiosyncratic, caused a lot of strife between my parents, which affected the children too. Um, and there were certain family members that took issue with that book because even though my relationship with her was only about 20 or 30% of the book, um, they took issue with that because they felt it wasn't how she would want to be remembered. Here's what I think. I think that we are all complex, multidimensional, um, colorful people. And nobody is all bad and nobody is all good. And I tell my students all the time, you have got to soften your villains and you have got to tarnish your saints because they're not believable characters on the page. Every reader knows that nobody is, is as one-sided as sometimes they get portrayed. So I think that if you're portraying these individuals as balanced people, then you are doing them a credit. The legacy is that these were wonderfully rich, complex, multidimensional people who maybe made some really bad choices but also had good aspects about them. To me, that's how I want to be remembered. Um, but that aside, there may be family members that just don't want certain facts or secrets exposed. And, and that the legacy, and, and will feel that you know, this person's legacy has been harmed, or, or maybe you'll feel that within yourself, and then that's something that you need to reconcile. Um, you have to decide what's more important, writing an honest, balanced story about these people, or preserving a kind of legacy that may be a fiction, but um, maybe helps shape other people's identity or keeps them happy. Um, that's a very personal decision and I can't tell you what to do. I can only tell you that if you write about someone holistically, showing both sides of their character, they become real, they become compassionate, they become likable on the page. And that, to me, is leaving them a wonderful legacy, personally. Thank you. I think we have time for one more question. Would you like to pick that Okay, the question was if you're writing fiction and you have characters based on real people but you've changed their names and some details, do you still need to be concerned about legal or ethical issues? I actually wouldn't let Hope take that because okay. I, I don't know the answer to that question. I know that there are some ethical like general worry that I might have in writing it, yeah. but I don't know that I have legal responsibility to anyone. Um, in that um, there have been cases um, where novelists have been sued for characters that closely resemble, um, closely resemble a character, um, closely resemble a real per characters that closely resemble a real person, and which the person has been able to make a case that many readers will identify this character with me. It's um, very time-consuming. It's very expensive. It's very um, difficult to prove that. The the case that I'm thinking of was in England, but see here the burden of proof is on the plaintiff to prove that there was malice involved. Um, in England, it's the other way around, I believe. Maybe someone can correct me, but I'm pretty sure that it becomes the, um, the defendant's responsibility to prove that they didn't base it on a real person, which actually is a lot harder to prove. Um, in the United States, um, the plaintiff has to prove actual damages, which is damage to a reputation and to a livelihood and financial harm. So it's very, very difficult. I mean, you don't want to even get to the point where you have to worry that somebody's going to do that. So here's the thing. Again, when you get to the publisher, you talk it over with them. 
And they, because this is what they do, they have a whole legal department that, that deals with issues like this, if you get to that point. Um, and you let them tell you what you need to do. Um, but fiction, you know, the rules are a little different. You're, you're a little more protected than you are in not fiction, but not completely. Um, so I would say change enough details so that it is close enough in your mind and your emotional life to the real person if it's important for you to base that character on this real person. But change enough of the factual details that it would be very, very hard for other people to identify. Now, that's not true with public figures. If you want to put um, an actual public figure, like a celebrity, in your story, it's a whole different ball game because they're public figures and it's not defamation, it's libel that you're worried about. Um, and, and, but there are also satire laws that might protect you, so you really need to talk this over with someone in the legal world and, and the statutes vary from state to state as well. So you need to talk with someone in your state if you're really worried. But here's the thing, while you're writing the book, write the book, don't worry about it. I tell my students, write the book with all the real names and all the real facts, because in memoir, once you start changing names while you're writing, it starts feeling like fiction, and you have the impulse to change other things as well. Write the book with all the real names and all the facts as you remember them to the best of your ability, verifying those that you can, and then you do a search and replace, and you change the names and then go through and you might change other details. I mean, I know writers who have, for legal reasons, had to change details, like put themselves in a different hometown, um, create family configurations that didn't exist, um, like put twins in a family where there were no twins, to try to protect the identity and, and protect themselves legally. I even know not memoirists who legally changed their names so that their family members can't be easily identified. Now, when you've gone to those lengths, the chances of someone being able to actually come after you for this are very, very low. They might still try, but then they're only calling attention to the fact that they are the people that, that readers can't otherwise identify, and that alone is often a deterrent. So I, I guess I will say one thing, and I think to Hope's point, just write the book. Um, you know, for me, yes, there was some relationship between members of my family and um, the characters in the book, but it actually, they're mostly composites and little parts of their stories that informed it, but this book has a life all its own. Um, and I think had I had worry deeply in my mind as I sat down to write, I wouldn't have finished this book. So just write it. We are past, we are past 12 o'clock now. I'm so sorry, I know more of you had questions, but I'll stay here for a little while if you want to come ask me anything. And um, then we'll all, Naomi and I will see some of you in classes. Have a great afternoon, everybody, and thank you for joining us.